Welcome to a Thursday edition of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, my co-host, Canucks Insider Thomas Drantz, here with you for the next couple of hours. Drantz, of course, are cover- of course, covers the team at the Athletic as well. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota All-Star Team. AvenueMachinery.ca, DouglasLakeEquipment.com. I am coming to you live from the Kintech Studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. As you may be able to hear, Drancer live on location out at UBC, where not yet, but in about an hour's time, uh, the Canucks will be practicing today, coming off their win in Ed- or in Edmonton, in Abbotsford against Edmonton last night. Drancer uh, set the scene for us out there at UBC. Um, I'm watching a girls practice this doesn't look like the university team though these are younger people uh really skilled though really uh, some good some good power play work going in um these are these are good players so yeah they're cutting up the ice before the canucks practice and uh you know we'll see if uh we'll see if the canucks complain about it i've really <laughs> no, i'm just kidding <laughs> i've really grown to enjoy the the grassroots hockey report that you yeah, give us when absolutely you, when you're out early before the canucks it's good it's got to get a little feel uh, for hockey gotta, in the community you got to get set up before uh, before we're on air. So there we go. I'm uh, I'm at the side of of the UBC rink and, and looking forward to a Canucks practice that I expect to be pretty telling. Coming off of a win last night in which Bruce Boudreaux kind of experimented one last time with his lineup. He wouldn't commit last night post game to playing a dress rehearsal lineup on Friday, but that's what we usually see NHL teams do. I think we'll know an awful lot about some of the lingering lineup questions that we have. Things like, Jack Rathbone, is he for sure going to play on opening night? Mm-hmm. And Niels Oman, has he made this team? I think we'll have a really good sense of the answers to those questions in about an hour. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see how they line up, wh- who's playing with who, uh, again, at 11 o'clock when they uh, get on the ice at UBC. And you're there, so you'll be able to give us the live update as it happens. But we got lots more Scintillating radio always. Yes, yes. Uh, is, that, is that Curtis Lazar? We live for it. We live for it. <laughs> All right. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber Tech side. You can get your thoughts in because finally it happened. Our, our nightmare is over here in this city, in this market. The Canucks won a preseason game transfer. Oh, my goodness. 5-4 over the Oilers in Abbotsford. I mean, biggest takeaway just from, like, a, a, a high-level perspective? Seemed like a really fun night for fans out there in Abbotsford. Got to see the best player in the world score a ridiculous goal. Got to see Elias Patterson with a couple snipes. I wasn't there. I know you were in the building, but it seemed like a pretty fun time. It was awesome. And and afterwards, I went out to uh, have a have a beer with um, a colleague and a nice gentleman at the at the establishment. Uh, picked up our tab and came over and introduced himself. His name was Harmon. Great guy. Um, ironically, his name was Harmon. Um, I was like, I know a guy named Harmon. Anyway, he um, he's, he said to me that him and his family had gotten to see Pedersen score twice from his spot and Connor McDavid go end-to-end multiple times for like 200 bucks for the whole family. And he was like, that's the best night of hockey you can have. And I thought to myself, you know what? He's not wrong. The games might not have counted, but that was a heck of a show that the Vancouver Canucks and the Edmonton Oilers put on out at the Abbotsford Center. Yeah, I mean, when you schedule a game... 
in Abbotsford, and obviously, you know, now with the Abbotsford Canucks there, you're promoting it, you, you want to generate that fan interest in the market out there in the Fraser Valley. I don't think you could ask for a much better result, right? The Canucks win, Connor McDavid is there and playing and does something spectacular, Elias Pettersson is doing spectacular things. It was kind of the ideal result from a Canucks organizational perspective, and just really delighted uh, that a bunch of fans who probably would not normally get the chance to see Connor McDavid, certainly not in that kind of environment out there in a relatively small uh, building. Mm-hmm. Intimate course, setting. Yeah, intimate setting relative to uh, to most NHL rinks, not the Arizona Coyotes rink, but most NHL rinks, it's, uh, it's much more intimate then. But very, very cool. Anyways, moving on to what, if anything, it tells us about the Canucks, maybe about the Oilers a little bit. We will have Mark Spector on later in the show to chat about the Edmonton Let's perspective go. on things. So we've set it up, and we've been talking about it, right? You said it multiple times yesterday. You know, what you wanted to see more than anything else was just a sense of progress, a sense of improvement, of going in the right direction on defense. Look a little bit more organized. Turn the taps off for the other team a little bit. What is your verdict on how the Canucks answered that question, Drancer? Um, I don't think they did. You know, I don't think they did, to be totally honest with you, Jamie. I, my my impression is, and here, and I said this on the show as I'll, well. I'll elaborate later, but I'm curious to know if you disagree. No, so my impression was, I thought it was better than what we've seen at times, but not enough to erase any concerns I have about the defense and the defensive structure long term. Right? Like I think I you don't could, know. I don't. I don't even know that it was better. Yeah, fair enough. I think you can make you know, the case I that mean, it was better. Think about think about the. Think about the leads that the Canucks would take and the Oilers would score on the very next shift. It felt like they could just turn on the tap. You know, and it wasn't all McDavid, right? It was Nugent Hopkins. It was on and on. And then, you know, the Canucks surrendered uh, a partial breakaway while defending uh, the lead late six on five. Right? I mean, that's... You don't want to see that. Like, you you shouldn't be able to get in behind a well-organized defense with 30 seconds to play and and the net empty. You know, like... I don't know. I didn't think it was a great defensive performance, but it was a nice win. And it was a fun time, and you could see the skilled players. But if your concern is the Canucks are going to have to outscore their defensive issues, like that's that's what they had to do last night. Yeah, well, and it, and it might end up looking like the blueprint for when this team is successful. You know what I mean? When it does win games this year, yeah. right? Elias Pettersson scores two power play goals. The power play in general looks really good, but... You're giving up an awful lot, and you, you win a 5-4 game, right? That that might be – I don't want to say it's going to be every time uh, that they win a game like that because they still do have Thatcher Demko. And right. He's going to do his thing a certain amount of the time. But, y- again, even the kind of the positive outlook on this team might include a lot of games that look kind of like that, which, hey – <laughs> As a spectator, I can get behind that. I don't Absolutely. know. If it's, I don't know if it's a sustainable way to, you know, it's win. not a sustainable way to get a hundred to points. win. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It, it might. But, uh, be, it might be something that can put you in a position to to make the playoffs. But is it going to put you in a position to climb higher up the NHL's hierarchy than that? Right. Well, and I mean, you know, you can't take anything from the preseason, but can we accept that we now know, having seen it in the preseason, that Connor McDavid is fast? Can we take that away from the preseason? Yeah. I say we can. Hey, um, hey, Drancer, just try backing off your mic a little bit, buddy. You're peeking quite a bit for us here, all right? Okay, excuse me. No, 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 it's all good. It's all good. How's that? That's a lot better. Good. And then, uh, then, look, I loved Pedersen's approach to last night in terms of the way he threw the body early. Uh, throughout the game, 
Um, you know, I thought there was an assertiveness that is his trademark when he is dialed in. We've seen it throughout the preseason. We saw it again last night. I think that's a fabulous sign. You know, when we talk about our expectation is that this guy shreds the mm-hmm. league, it's performances like last night that sort of make you go, okay, there's something really, there's something happening here in terms of maybe it's maturity, maybe it's a level of focus, maybe it's just anger at how last season went. Uh, a desire to prove that he can be who he was in the second half and who he has been for most of his career, frankly, uh, over the course of a full 82. Uh, I don't know exactly what's motivating it, but you could tell it at training camp. You could tell it in every other preseason game he's played, and it was undeniable yesterday evening, right? That was a a Pedersen masterclass. The goals were almost gravy. It was Mm -hmm. more about the effort, the focus, how disruptive he was in all phases of the game. Um, you know, from an Edmonton standpoint, I was I was wildly impressed by what we saw from number 40. Yeah, and Boudreaux talked about it after the game, right, saying he was basically leading the charge from the first shift. He was leading all night and how, you know, he was he was speaking purely as, you know, Pedersen's development as a leader and knowing that that's yep. a priority for the player, which I think is really interesting and good to hear uh, from the coach that he's noticing that and, and yeah, as I said, taking note of those developments. But Obviously, the big, you know, the most important thing is doing it on the ice consistently, and it's really been from from day one, the first session in Whistler. You started to notice it. We all noticed it there, right? He looks completely locked in, and there's something about Elias Pettersson where you can really get a sense of the swagger he has when he's completely dialed in, right? You can just see it. It oozes off of him, the confidence that he has, the engagement, all of that. You saw it with the physicality, but also just the the plays that he's making, the way he zips the puck around on the power play, all of it. There is every sign, every sign that we are on the cusp of a big Elias Pettersson season here. Doesn't mean it's a guarantee, but if you were looking, if you were trying to read the tea leaves, if you were looking for things that were, you know, good omens for him going off, you're seeing absolutely everything you could possibly want to from, from Elias Pettersson so far. And again, there's no guarantee that it, that it continues, but really that's got to be the number one. I guess there's maybe two big picture takeaways from the Canucks preseason. I know they still have one more game left. Number one is the defense, and the, those defensive concerns are still very, very real uh, and, and a threat to this team. And then I think number two is Elias Pettersson's performance and how locked in he looks. Yeah, although I have a lot more takeaways from last night, including I felt like Boudreaux postgame, that commentary on always being happy to take a penalty when a, when a player stands up for their teammate. Uh, there were some liberties taken mm-hmm. with Canucks players last night. There was a, you know, uh, away from the puck clothesline from Darnell Nurse on Niels Hoaglander. Um, you know, Pedersen got hit in the back, which was the play that Boudreaux was referring to when, when uh, Tanner Pearson jumped in um, at following that hit. You know, Quinn Hughes, uh, high stick, it was mm-hmm. relatively vicious. I mean, the list goes on. There were some liberties taken with various Canucks players. And Tanner Pearson on two occasions with Oliver ekman Larson and with Elias Pettersson jumped in, and I'm not sure anyone else did at any point. Um, Boudreaux sort of noted they, you need to have that from the team. He's always happy to take the penalty when it occurs, and I felt like that was a little bit of a challenge to his group, that you know he wants more of that, that there were more opportunities where maybe that could have or should have happened. Um, I, I felt, you know, I was sort of watching the game thinking to myself, are the Canucks going to be one of those teams that responds, or are they going to be one of those teams that makes you pay on the power play? And and it felt like last night they leaned toward being uh, that team on the power play. I was curious to see what 
Boudreaux had to say about it. And at the end of his availability, he sort of suggested, nah, actually, like, <laughs> we don't need to punish on the power play. Let's actually just punish them. It, it's, <laughs> and, interesting. Uh, it's interesting, though, because you look at the lineup and you think, well, it's tailor-made to punish teams on the power play, right? Like, that's the strength of their team, and they don't necessarily have – I mean, Tanner Pearson, good for him for doing it, and obviously he gets the credit from the coach, but you don't think of him as that type of guy. Like, oh, he's really going to – you know, Tanner Pearson's going to keep the other team in check. It, it seems like they're structured to make teams play on the uh, pay on the power play more than anything. Yeah, and and I mean, you know, you see why it was a priority to play, and 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 why it's going to be a priority to roster Dakota yeah. Joshua, uh, Luke Shen. Um, you know, obviously we know takes the policeman role seriously, right? Um, but you know, I, I think the I thought I thought the coach himself certainly with his commentary implied that he wanted more of it last night. I don't think that's um, a wild takeaway to have from the game. Like You want to see the Canucks do a little bit more to stand up for themselves, particularly because this remains a relatively skilled, a relatively smallish team. Um, you know, I, I felt like that was a little bit of a gauntlet thrown down to his group, uh, a challenge to make sure that that doesn't happen again. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective from Boudreaux as well. And, I mean, I think, you know, par part of that is just – He's talked about the team needing to have that belief that they developed, right? And I wonder if that kind of ties in. The, the, the belief they developed last season when he came in and they started to play a lot better and get better results. Uh, I wonder if there's a tie-in in his perspective there, right? That, okay, maybe you you lose yourself a few power play opportunities, but you're helping to generate that belief. You're helping to generate that buy-in that this team obviously needs to be successful, right? I think what we what we saw last year was the way this team is currently set up, they cannot, you know, muddle through bad vibes or a bad atmosphere and still find a way to consistently get results. They need all of those intangible things pointing in their direction to help them. And maybe maybe that's Bruce Boudreaux's perspective on this as well, right? It, it just the the extra bump to cohesiveness and team morale is worth sacrificing uh, those those odd power plays. Now, having said that, I think when the power play looks like it did last night, when it has looked like it, when it looks like it has consistently throughout this preseason, I mean, I don't have a problem with taking uh, taking your chances on the man advantage either. Yeah, although I wouldn't say last night was as good power play wise. I know they got results, but they also had ten opportunities. Yeah, that's fair. right. I mean, uh, and and I would just say Pedersen's shot making was on point last night. Uh, they didn't have JT Miller, so you're always grading on a curve when the guy who sort of initiates much of the puck movement isn't there, isn't in the lineup. But, um, you know, I'm not certain that their power play looked quite as sharp overall and generated quite the same level of consistent threat that we've seen. Um, you know, that's that's hockey, right? Now, Sometimes yeah. you're not you're not roll you're not rolling uh, 12 out of 12, and yet. You know, you get three goals and, and win the game effectively. Well, right? and, and was the difference in the game. I actually think in some ways the performance on the power play illustrates, it also illustrates why their power play should be so dangerous. Because as you said, maybe not the most chance generation or the sharpest, they're missing JT Miller. But yeah. you still have Elias Pettersson, who can who can <laughs> who can score those two goals, right? So right. you know you know when they're absolutely clicking and they're generating high value chances, it's going to be really really good. But I think the floor of having a guy like Elias Pettersson there, of how I make Bo Horvat in the bumper, it doesn't take them a lot of opportunities necessarily, right? So I agree yeah. with you, but I also think it's kind of it also proves why they're going to be so dangerous because yeah, okay, it's not we're not necessarily clicking and passing it around like the Globetrotters, but guess what? Elias Pettersson can still beat the goalie. Well, and I would say this, though. This was my more meaningful takeaway of what I was trying to segue to, uh, which isn't to criticize the club's performance by any means, particularly not on a night when they score three goals, five on four. But 
I did think last night was the first time you could see, not how the Canucks would miss JT Miller, because that's so obvious, mm. but where you could see how the Canucks will miss Brock Besser at the net front on PP1, right? Um, to this point, we've talked a little bit about the Kuzmenko learning curve in the sort of realm of fitness and pace, right? Uh, defensive details. Mm-hmm. But I also think there's one other one other side that I've become more aware of and, and certainly was aware of against a more NHL caliber lineup. Like that was really the first time I've seen him where every time he stepped on the ice, there were NHL level defenders and forwards, you know, and maybe a couple guys um, checking him all night. And I do think there's a speed of decision making, like a processing speed adjustment when you come over to the smaller rink. And I think that's going to take him a little bit of time. Now that I've seen him with NHL defenders closing, I sort of think he's going to need to release the puck a little bit more quickly uh, and make quicker decisions both in the neutral zone and in the offensive end. I thought that was really apparent last night, especially five on four, and just sort of reminded me that for all the Kuzmenko hype, right, Brock Besser is so good at the net front, five on four, and last night was like those are the types of things that he just nails. You You never even think about it probably don't notice it either way but for sure it makes a difference in terms of maintaining that consistent threat level i just it was the first time that i was like okay this is why you know this is why i would now expect besser to be back on pp1 when he comes back like i just i'm not convinced that kuzmenko is going to necessarily click enough to supplant a guy who's as good as besser in that spot right from the jump yeah i think you would have to really set the world on fire to a certain degree for however long Brock Besser is out. And we still don't know exactly how many regular season games that will be. I will say though, like I, I hear what you're saying about just, you know, learning the speed of the game and when to release the puck and all that. But I also noticed the moments where I thought he was really effective carrying the puck through the neutral zone and helping the team gain the zone, right. With some nice, uh, with some nice moves at the blue line. And but that I know what you're talking about. You're talking about those dipsy doodles. Yeah. But that was so indirect you know what I mean? That it, that club couldn't even get set up for a while after they gained entry. It took them like five, six touches, maybe 20 seconds, to actually get into their setup after those moves because it was such an indirect entry. Yeah. Like, that's actually the play I'm talking about when I'm talking about the decision-making issue. But to me, um, I also look at that as a sign of, like, he has the skill. Okay, now you, if you, I think he can learn the processing speed, right? And oh, then me you too. have, me too. and then you have a guy who can help you gain the zone in a more efficient way. You know what I mean? Now, I still don't think just, I don't think just because of that potential, you bump Brock Besser from his spot on power play one. But it it looks with with Kuzmenko has always looked to me. I can see the flaws, but I also just keep seeing the skill that I think will allow him to overcome those flaws in relatively short order. You know what oh, I mean? Oh, for sure. I mean, we're talking about a very high bar. We're talking yeah. about Brock Besser, who scored <laughs> what t- ten or twelve power play goals last year at the net front, right? I mean, th- this is a this is not a low bar conversation. We're talking about. We're talking about. Is this guy going to be better than a guy on PP1 who's a consistent 25-goal scorer in the NHL and scores at like a 30-goal-per-82-game rate throughout his career, which has been six seasons long, right? I mean, this is a very high bar, a very lofty comparison. I just feel like in this market, Kuzmenko's been such a supernova in Mm. terms of his preseason results, and, you know, he's earned that. The skill's so evident. 
it's just there are still some details that I think are going to give Besser the edge uh, once they're actually in competition for that spot. I don't think there's the sort of suspense that I may have coming out of like the game yesterday, last Thursday, for example. Well, and because uh, you and know, I think Besser's going to be net front PP one. I think he's going to keep be able to maintain that role all season once he once he gets back. And Kuzmenko's the good moments really pop, right? Because there is such a high level of skill and you notice it so much. And that's not to discount those good moments because I think they're important. And again, that skill level is really legitimately impressive, but it's going to kind of leap off your screen in a way that some of the things Brock Besser does won't necessarily, right? So I think it's yeah. easy with Kuzmenko to kind of get locked in on, oh my goodness, this guy has incredible hands, uh, even if there's some other things that still need work. But again, as I said, I everything I've seen from Kuzmenko so far has given me more confidence than I had coming into training camp that he's going to be able to figure it out and he's going to be able to be effective at the NHL level. Because I think in addition to the skills, I think there's a high level of hockey IQ there, which bodes really, really well uh, for his ability to adapt. We'll take a quick break here. Again, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. You can continue to get your thoughts in, your reactions to the 5-4 win over the Edmonton Oilers last night in Abbotsford. We've got lots more about takeaways from that. And again, at 11, the Canucks will be getting on the ice at UBC where Drancer is posted up. So we'll have a live reaction from Canucks practice, what the lines look like, all of that uh, as they get set for their final preseason tune-up tomorrow against Arizona. But up next, he covers the Oilers for Sportsnet. Mark Spector will join the show. We'll talk about the Oilers. They are, of course... Uh, the Canucks game one opponent next week as well. So we'll get his perspective on the game last night and the season ahead for Edmonton. That's up next. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650, the home of the Canucks. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Uh, it is the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drantz here with you, and uh, we are now very joined to be pleased by uh, Mark <laughs> Spector, who covers the Edmonton Oilers for Sportsnet. Of course, Speck, thanks very much for doing this. How are you? Oh, pretty well. Boys, how's it going out there? Uh, it's going very well, and, you know, I just want to say I, I really appreciate you uh, joining us, even though you have to talk to Drance as part of this interview. So I, I do really uh, appreciate you know, it. We <laughs> all have our crosses to bear in this business. <laughs> You just got to power through some days, guys. That's yeah. all there is to it. I, I got to do it every day. So, yeah, I know all about having, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> having a cross to bear. Well. <laughs> uh, no comment on that one, Speck. Um, so we saw the uh, the Canucks and the Oilers play again last night. Um, they'll meet on the opening night of the season next Wednesday as well. So far from training camp and the preseason, what's been your kind of biggest takeaway from what you've seen of the Oilers so far? Uh what is my biggest takeaway? I guess in terms of historically, you know, the battles are generally at the bottom of the lineup here now. I've watched this team for many years, and maybe the Canucks were there not very long ago, where whoever you drafted in June comes in and is one of your best players, and he's going to make your team. Uh, that's not the case. It was the case here at Edmonton for a long time. It's not the case anymore. The battles in this camp are for your six defensemen, and there are a couple guys that have had some time in the AHL, Broberg, uh, Philip Broberg, and Marcus Niemelainen. 
And uh, there's kind of three guys for the, you know, top two right wing spots. Yamamoto's been around a while. Jesse Poyarvi's 24. He's not 18. And even the young Dylan Holloway, he's a young new player coming in, but he's 21 years old, right? He's not 18 or 19 like they used to be. So they're deeper, they're better, they're a harder team to make for sure. Uh, on Dylan Holloway, because he was a standout, especially when uh, when the game was in Edmonton, do you expect him to, to play a significant role for the Oilers this year? You know, let's wait and see, right? Like the the beauty of having a little bit better team is I think he's won the job from, let's you know, it's basically a top six winger job in Edmonton. He's a left winger, Pujar was a right winger, but Hyman goes from side to side. So I think Holloway has won the job over Pujarvi. I'm sure that he has, in my opinion, um, in this camp. So he came in and has displaced a veteran player. Great. He's also, you know, not played. He played one NHL playoff game. So let's see what happens when the season starts and you're playing against full NHL lineups every single night. Right. Pujarvi's done that before to varying degrees of success. Holloway's never done it before. So, yeah, I think he'll make the team on opening night because of his contract and the cap situation and all that. Does he hold, you know, is he still in that top six and playing that role uh, on November 1st? Now let's wait and see. Spec with the fourth line looking, or the third line looking relatively set in Edmonton, excuse me, how do you handicap the race that we've seen for that remaining fourth line winger spot? Or is that now where you'd expect Pugliarvi to slot in, barring a trade over the course of the next week? Right, it's a good question, right? Is is Pugliarvi a fourth line player? Like, is that what you're going to use him for? You know, I would say this to you guys. No one's going to say... Derek Ryan's a better player than Jesse Pujarvi, or you'd rather have him. Or not no one, but that's, that seems counterintuitive to say that. But if you're asking me who's a better fourth liner, mm. I'm probably telling you I'll take Derek Ryan over Jesse Pujarvi as a fourth liner, right? He wins face-offs. He kills penalties. He's very uh, versatile. So, you know, it's a good question. They're going to have to figure it out. If Pujarvi's not in the top six and he's not on the third line, is he a fourth-line player? Do you take a offensive kind of skill guy and, and try to make him a fourth-line, or, or is that a bad idea? Uh, that's, I'm afraid, what they pay the coaching staff for. I'm not sure that he suits it for me as a fourth-liner, guys. What about you? Well, I always think the best fourth-liner spec is a guy who, if you need him, is a third-liner. And so, for me, Pugliarvi over Ryan every day, right? No matter what. Okay. No matter no matter how, and, and you know, I'm not one of those people who thinks the criticisms of his hockey IQ are completely off base, right? I think that's a completely fair observation and one widely shared within the industry. But when a guy gets hurt, when, a guy, when I need a guy to bring up my lineup further, Pugliarvi all day over anyone else the Oilers have auditioning for that fourth line, surely. Well, that, that's, you know, that's fair. That's one way to look at it. But I guess I'd say to you, when guys aren't hurt and you've picked your team mm. and it's game one, you know, who's going to win an important face-off for me? Well, I know Derek Ryan can. Who's going to kill a penalty right. for me? I know that Derek Ryan can, right? Who's going to protect the 2-1 lead late in the game if he gets caught out there on the road? I know that Derek Ryan can. So I'm not here to tell you Derek Ryan's a way better player or any of that stuff. I'll repeat myself. I think he's a better fourth liner than Pugliarvi is as a fourth liner. I don't want Pugliarvi in my fourth line. I want him in my top nine. And to be honest, if I need to, you know, if, I don't know what needs to happen. He's had a chance to earn this job in training camp. He's played four games. He's got six shots on goal and one assist. 
So he hasn't earned yeah. a thing here. I mean, he hasn't earned had a, a brutal, thing. He's been invisible. Had a brutal neutral zone pass yesterday, too. Yeah, he's not. He hasn't been any good. So, you know what, guys? This kid isn't 20 anymore. He's not 21 anymore. He's 24. He's been around a long time here, right? At some point, you got to kick your kid out of the house and say, stand up on your own feet, son. And I think instead of giving Pugliarvi more opportunity, what the Oilers are saying is it's time for you to earn some opportunity. And in this training camp, he has not earned any. It's Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650 in conversation with Mark Spector, who, of course, covers the Edmonton Oilers uh, for Sportsnet. And, you know, one thing we've talked a lot in uh, here in Vancouver about, hey, this is Bruce Boudreaux's first training camp with the team. Yeah, they played well, but fell short after he took over. Uh, How is it going to be different in his first full season? And I think it's easy to forget because they had such a successful playoff run last year. But the same could be said in Edmonton with Jay Woodcroft, who took over mid last season and now has his first full training camp with the team. What? effect have you maybe seen or, or, or impact have you seen from the training camp with Woodcroft so far and what do you think the effect could be throughout the course of the season spec well it's a good question I think it's more um, I think it's more with individual players right like you know the last coach had some feelings on a players on certain players and he was probably wrong on some of them or he wouldn't have got fired <laughs> <laughs> you know and that yeah. goes for every coach on every team so the new coach comes in, and he's got some different opinions on different guys. And in certainly in in Boudreaux's case, those you know his work was rewarded for a little while, and then it kind of fell off. In Woodcroft's case, he took over a team that was on like a two eleven and two jag, and uh, basically took them to the third round of the playoffs. So you know all thumbs are up on this guy. Like a coach comes in and does that. You know, you, he got a new three-year contract here, and he's ready to go. So I think you'll see him look at a few players a little bit differently. Right? He may, you know, for instance, he's formed this third line with Nugent Hopkins in the middle and Fogel and Ryan McLeod on the wings, and this is his idea of a good third line. He thinks it's going to work. Let's watch and see, right? He's he's. Let's see what he does with his Philip Broberg kid. Holland said the job was his to lose in training camp. He hasn't been very good. I think he's lost it. But that's a decision the coach is going to make. So let's see what the coach is, is, how he weighs development against performance right now. So, you know what, let's see how he does with this same group of players almost that Dave Tippett had, but he did a better job with Spec, do coaches that have a transformative impact in midseason on their hockey club tend to earn three-year extensions? Is that something that happens? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm not sure about that. I'll leave that one with you. Not, not here. Not here in Vancouver, apparently it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Well, <laughs> I'm leaving that one, man. I'm leaving that one. Spec, watching the Oilers last night, I mean, that was a great show. Like, both teams put on a great show. You get two yeah, Pedersen... Well. You get two Pedersen goals. You get two McDavid and Nan rushes. Um, you know, anyone who paid preseason prices to see that game in Abbotsford last night had yeah. a great night out. Considering what this Oilers team is icing this year, I mean, where are the expectations in Edmonton for this team? Well, they're, they're a cup contender. They've got to be, right? You can't go – there's just no room between – we went to the third round uh, in a season where we changed our coach – where we added Evander Kane halfway through, where we added uh, short up our defense halfway through, and we got to the third round. Now we're starting next year. They signed Brett Kulak. I'm not saying he's a great player, but he's a nice defenseman. He works for you. You got Kane all year long. Uh, you've been 
through the playoff grind and, and learned a bunch of stuff. We watched Dry Settle, what he's what he's made of, the way he played in the playoffs. You got McDavid. You got Jack Campbell, who should be an upgrade on Mike Smith. I, I think that's fair to say. Certainly he's 12 years younger. I don't think there's any room between, well, we're a good team, all those things happen, and now we're not a Stanley Cup contender. You're going to be the Edmonton Oilers. You've got to look yourself in the mirror and say, we can win a cup. You know, you can't. There's no more middle ground between the third round and the fourth round here. So they are a team. I'm not telling you they're the favorite. I'm not saying they're the best team in the league. But I am saying this is a team whose aspirations should be, we'll get into a Stanley Cup and we're going to win it. And anything short of that is, you know, there's they got some good players here, man. they got a lot of depth, a pretty good team. Anything short of, of being a genuine cup contender uh, isn't good enough around here anymore, and I think that's fair. What do you think? No, I think you're right. And well, and I think the stakes are really high for this Oilers team, considering you've only got a couple years really left in you know what we'd consider to be McDavid's statistical prime. Uh, yeah, that's fair. You know, sure. Uh, I, I'm less worried about a statistical prime and more about the contracts. Drysaddle has three years left. I think McDavid has four. Is that how it goes? I always get that wrong. Anyway, to me, it's about the contracts and about being able to afford guys and trying to win before those two guys are either A, on the newer, more expensive contracts, or B, one or two of them aren't here anymore. Uh, mm. We had the statistical prime conversation on McDavid. I'm not telling you that... <laughs> You know, yeah, take the bait. You're telling me that after this season, he's never going to be this good anymore, and I'm calling you know what? Oh no, I'm saying uh, he's got a couple seasons. He's got a couple seasons, and then more than likely, uh, he'll still be the best player in hockey, but by a diminishing amount going forward, right? I mean, that's how it's worked for Crosby and Gretzky and all the greats, right? You tend to have your best statistical seasons be at the absolute height of your powers you know, before you turn 26 and thereafter, you know, yeah. you can still be a like better winner, but you're not necessarily, oh, yeah. uh, you're not necessarily going to have the sorts of, you know, uh, most points in the league at five on five by 50 over the last two years, <laughs> margin over the field that McDavid's maintained as the best hockey playing human the last few seasons. Oh, that's no, that's fair. Your statistical, you know, your the numbers game might not look as pretty, but you're to me, you can be a way better player. You can be a guy that's more able and knows what to do to win games and, and you know, when it's time to go for points, when it's time to defend, when it's we watch a lot of these guys who figure it out late later in their careers and win some cups. Uh, and it's not they're not winning cups based on being fifty points ahead in five V five, right? So to me, that's the question. I think what we're talking here, Thomas, is numbers versus intangibles. And I get it. A lot of people don't respect intangibles. I do. I think that if the numbers go down a little and the smarts go up, you might have every bit as good a player, if not better. We'll just keep you another couple minutes here. I, I did want to ask you about uh, the Oilers' blue line before we let you go. You mentioned, you know, the battle is really for that sixth spot. And I just look at how the rest of it stacks up. And, you know, for years, the defense was the question behind McDavid and Dreisaitl. But now with yep. the addition of Brett Kulak, you know, Evan Bouchard having a breakout season last year, it looks like while maybe not in the top tier of the league in terms of blue lines, it's a lot more poised for success than it has been in years past. Yeah, I think you describe it perfectly, right? Uh, you know, your top pair is Cody Cece and uh, Darnell Nurse. You know, listen... Edmonton's not Vancouver. Vancouver has a guy that, if he's not there yet, he will be right away, uh, who we would all put in that group of 
bona fide number one NHL defenseman, right? Quinn Hughes is right there. He's going to be a number one guy, like in that group with Petrangelo and Doughty and McCarr. There's only about 14 of them for 32 teams to split up. Eminent doesn't have one, right? Nurse isn't that guy. He's making a lot of money, and he's their best defenseman. But he's not what I would say a genuine number one guy. But he's a pretty good defender. He skates well. You know, he's he's their guy. CC with them. They were awfully good in the playoffs last year, and Nurse is playing hurt. Bouchard's come along in the second pairing and play with Kulak. You know, you grew this guy. He's he's got some offense to his game. He's going to figure it out defensively. He's getting better and better, so he's not bad. Uh, and then on your third pairing, you put a young guy with Tyson Berry. Tyson Berry is a pretty good safety valve. If I don't know what to do with a puck, I can give it to him, and he usually does the right thing with it. Uh, they're not perfect. It's a cap world. No team is perfect. But their defense is okay. They got Ryan Murray hanging around as a seventh. He's going to fill in where you know when needed. And you're going to break in a rookie in the other spot, name a line and a Broberg or someone. So, you know, they're okay. I'm not saying they're great. I think you described them perfectly. They're better than they were. Uh, finally, Spec, just before we let you go, you know, I do I do have to ask about former Canuck Jake Vertanen, who's still there on a PTO, and we're seeing players start to be released from their PTOs now. I know the Canucks released Danny DeKaiser. I saw the Flames today uh, with Sonny Milano and Cody Eakin. Uh, I have obviously haven't watched as much of it as you have, but from what I've generally heard from people covering the team, it hasn't been going well uh, for Vertanen. What's your perspective on, on how likely he is to convert from a PTO and actually join the Oilers? Yeah, I would be uh, a ga- I would be flabbergasted if they signed him. Yeah. I don't see it. You know, unless he wants to do a two-way deal and go down to Bakersfield and figure it out, you know, they may do him that service. Uh, whatever the relationship, guys, is that that exists that had him coming in here in the first place, maybe that relationship is strong enough to get him a two-way deal. But you know, and I'll say this: he has he did nothing his first three or four games here. Would he play like thirty-eight games last year in the K? He needed some time. I noticed the last couple games he has been better. I'm starting to notice him a little. He's doing a little more. Not enough to make this team. He's not making this top 13 forwards on this team. No chance. Uh, The only question for me is whether they just flat out release him or, you know, there's a lot of good players out there. I'm not sure if he gets released if someone's picking him up, guys. He may have to take a two-way deal to find his way back into the game if he's going to do that. Well, I mean, as I said, you know, Sonny Milano just being released from his PTO with the Flames. And I, if, if I was a GM out there and I was choosing between the two, I know which way I would be leading, Spec. Me too. Yeah. Me too. You know, so that's it for, you know, we'll see. I'm not here to cancel Jake for 10. And I am here to say he's got to be a better player if he thinks he's going to be back in the NHL. Can he be that guy? I guess we're going to watch and find out. No doubt about it. Hey, Mark, we really appreciate the time again with the uh, with the technical difficulties uh, on my end. I apologize for that. And I apologize for uh, for you having to talk to Drance as well. But uh, hopefully, yeah, well, hopefully, we can do it again soon. Don't worry. I'll invoice accordingly. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. Please do. Thanks, Spec. Spec always in his statistical prime when it comes to invoicing. <laughs> uh, there he is that is mark specter from uh, from sportsnet covering the oilers of course doing fantastic work always a pleasure to talk to and yeah drancer i mean first of all i'm having a terrible day here i don't know what's going on all of a sudden halfway through that interview nothing through my headphones i thought we had lost spec we had not uh so that's on me that's my bad i don't know what's going on i also apparently 
when we welcomed him uh, to the show, I said, we are now joined to be pleased by Mark Spector instead of yeah. pleased to be you, joined. You definitely. Yeah, which is really that. just incredible. So, you know, I'm, I'm off to no, a good... It's, it's uh, quite loaded. <laughs> I'm um, off to a good with, start uh, today. Well, really quickly, before we go for break, the Canucks are filtering onto the ice here at UBC. Don't know if we're going to get a ton of answers about uh, NHL-looking lines today. Sheldon Dry is wearing top-line red. Niels Hoaglander wearing top-line red. Linus Carlson wearing second-line green. All right. Suspect the Canucks may not use Friday to be a lineup like a dress rehearsal lineup that speaks volumes about their plans, at least based on how they're stepping onto the ice so far at UBC. Yeah, we'll talk more about that on the other side. It is interesting because when when Boudreaux was asked about it, you know, he didn't really commit to using it as a dress rehearsal, but he also said, you know, we only have so many healthy bodies, so there's not it's not as if they can dress a full AHL lineup and rest all of their guys uh, tomorrow. However, if you're looking for signs, yeah, Sheldon Dries uh, in the top line red, as you said, it's a pretty good sign that we are not going to get that classic dress rehearsal on Friday. We, were ta- we will talk more about the implications of that, continue to break down what we saw yesterday in the game against the Oilers as well, what to watch for in tomorrow's game and then over the Thanksgiving long weekend as the regular season rapidly approaches. More Canucks talk on the other side. It is the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650, second hour of the show. It's Jamie Dodd. It's my co-host, Canucks insider, Thomas Drantz. We are coming to you live from the Kintec studio, or at least I am. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.com. Net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And we got uh, just a little uh, a little snippet, a little preview of um, the line situation, the practice situation. The Canucks are getting on the ice at UBC as we speak. Drancer is on location at the practice, and I have been uh, frantically refreshing both Drance's Twitter feed and Batch's Twitter feed to see who's going to get line combinations out first today. And uh, as you heard from Drance on, uh, just on the other side of the break there, before we went to break, you know, Sheldon Dries is out, uh, along with Niels Hoaglander, wearing top-line red, which is, you know, every, every day at practice, the Canucks, the top-line wears red, second-line wears green. Other lines have their colors assigned to them. So, you know, I'm guessing Bruce Boudreaux has not all of a sudden decided to run with a uh, a Sheldon Dries and Niels Hoaglander top-line when they open the regular season in Edmonton uh, next week. So it's a pretty good indicator, as much of an indicator as you can expect to get that the Canucks are not going to use tomorrow night against the Arizona Coyotes as that classic dress rehearsal, uh, you know, in their final game of the preseason. Again, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We will see what else we can glean, if anything, from how the Canucks line up today at UBC. We'll get you that information as soon as we have it. Um, the other thing I'm going to be really fascinated to see, and look, 
it's the kind of thing now, if it was obviously a full dress rehearsal lineup that you can just look at and say, okay, I have a pretty good idea of who's won that four flying job. I have a pretty good idea of who's going to be in the top six. With this kind of lineup that we're likely to see at practice tonight, today at UBC, you're going to have to do a lot more reading between the lines, right? Because, okay, Niels Hoaglander is playing with Sheldon Dries. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that Niels Hoaglander has been demoted or anything like that, or he's going to be a healthy scratch. It, it could just be a matter of, hey, we only have so many bodies that we're going to dress. Somebody else is sitting out, so we got to put Hoaglander with Sheldon Dries. Uh, that it could be as simple as that, right? But what I'm going to be really curious uh, to see is what we end up getting on the blue line because, you know, Jack Rathbone didn't play in that game last night. And I have certainly looked at it as, okay, Jack Rathbone has won a spot on this Ross, on this lineup. Okay. For me, they clearly need him in the lineup. I thought Bruce Boudreaux had some interesting things to say as well, where he was positive, but also kind of said, well, you know, we had our, our six guys on the blue line in the lineup that caught me a little bit by surprise. All right, here we go. We do have officially the lines from Batch today and maybe leaning just slightly more in the direction of uh, a dress rehearsal type uh, of setup, according to Batch. So here we go. At UBC, Batch says, JT Miller centering the top line with Tanner Pearson and Niels Hoaglander, and you've got Sheldon Dries rotating in on that spot. Elias Pedersen, with Linus Carlson and Andre Kuzmenko. Bo Horvat with Vasily Podkolzin and Connor Garland. That's a unit we've seen together fairly consistently, certainly before Brock Besser uh, got injured. And then Neil Zaman uh, with Jason Dickinson and Curtis Lazar. Dakota Joshua, the extra on that line. On the blue line, Hughes and Shen. No surprise there. OEL and Poolman remain together. Jack Rathbone and Kyle Burrows. Christian will land in the extra. No sign of Tyler Myers. We'll wait to see if there's anything to that or if it's just a, a scheduled day off for Tyler Myers. Uh, we will wait to hear from Bruce Boudreaux about that a little bit later when he speaks to the media. So a lot of things jump out to me there. First of all, I mean, Hoaglander gets a chance potentially to skate with JT Miller and Tanner Pearson. Now, yes, Sheldon Dries is rotating in there, but again, that's going to be, that screams Niels Hoaglander getting a shot with those guys. Obviously, that's typically Brock Besser's spot on that right wing. We've seen Connor Garland try out there, and now, based on the lines of practice today, Niels Hoaglander is going to get that look. That's huge for me because, and we'll get Drancer's perspective here in just a second, but we have seen, you know, we, we've talked about the lack of opportunity relative to some other players that Niels Hoaglander has got, despite the fact that he's looked very impressive uh, from the start of training camp in Whistler. We'll see how this opportunity develops, but just seeing him get to skate on a line potentially with JT Miller and Tanner Pearson, to me, that bodes very well for the potential role Niels Hoaglander might get to play to opening the lineup. As we welcome Drance back into the conversation, Drance, I just read uh, from Batch's Twitter feed, yeah. I hate to say, uh, to my co host. Fresh co-host. off my defeat. Yes. Fresh off my latest defeat. Fresh off your latest too- defeat, yeah. I was a little slow on the pairs because uh, Tyler Myers wasn't there. For some reason, I had trouble locating Tyler Myers on the ice, <laughs> which is the first time I've ever said that. Yes. So, look, the Canucks trickled on. It's Linus Carlson. It's Dries. It's Hoaglander. You can understand why my impression was mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, what it was at first, but 
ultimately everyone made it onto the ice, including JT Miller, who was the last to arrive among the Canucks' top six forwards. So I was wondering if he might not be there after he was a surprise scratch yesterday. Ultimately, before the gate closed, JT Miller jumped on, and we saw a Canucks lineup that, absent Myers, looks pretty close to what we'd expect Mm -hmm. the Canucks to try out on opening night. I think there's a bunch to read into. One thing that stands out to me, and we already talked about Bruce Boudreaux's commentary about wanting to see this team stand up for one another, right? Wanting to see and being willing to take whatever penalty minutes result from pushing back when liberties are taken against various players. And all of a sudden, Joshua is the extra on line four, something we haven't seen ever since the start of training camp. Um, that, to me, I, I I read something into that, and we'll ask Boudreaux after practice if there is anything to be read into that. But certainly he was on the ice when Niels Hoaglander got clotheslined by Darnell Nurse. I, you know, I think there's probably something there, right? That's one of those reading between the lines. I think it's a message. not Not one that's necessarily going to take Joshua out of the lineup on opening night. They still need what he brings, but a message that, hey, like, you've got a job to do here. Last night, I don't know if Bruce was happy with how it was done. Um, and, you know, I think he certainly left that, like, trail of breadcrumbs for us to follow in his post-game availability. Um, no Myers, so do you think that Pullman is a fill-in for Myers, or is it if Myers was here... Pullman would bump down and offset Burroughs. Yeah. Right? It, that it, remains... It's a really good question because, yeah. you know, Bruce Boudreaux talked yesterday that he thought that was Tucker Pullman's best game, and I think he also <laughs> he gave some important context, I think, in how the team is evaluating him, and we talked about this a little bit yesterday, right, where yeah. it's, you have to recognize the circumstances he's coming back from, and you, you just really need to see that trajectory keep going in the right direction, and Boudreaux is saying, we're seeing that, right? We're seeing the stamina come back. We're seeing him get back up to game speed, and that was his best performance yet so on the one hand you hear that and you think okay they're going to put him right back with the guy who he had his best performance with in OEL but I also just look at Hughes going back with Shen and I think it would be so easy to go Hughes Shen OEL Myers right the four guys you rolled with you know maybe you're not excited about the ceiling there but at least you know what to expect from that top four and then you probably go Pullman and Rathbone uh, on your third pairing right like that's kind of the easiest cleanest fit for all of the pieces that I see. Having said that, if they think there's something, a certain level of comfort there uh, with Pullman and OEL, I could see them sticking with that for a little bit more too. Well, that was the original plan when they signed Tucker Pullman, right? The original plan was to play him with OEL. They thought his defensive chops and mobility would be a good complement for OEL and allow him to play more of an offensive game. Now, we know, too, that a big priority for this organization is finding ways to put Oliver Ekman Larson Mm -hmm. in more offensive situations right and does it are you do you accomplish that to some extent by giving him a partner that's more likely to stay at home a bit to cover for him to allow him to be a little bit more creative that would imply that perhaps there is something to the Pullman OEL thing um, I'm so, not sure you do accomplish it that much, though, Grants, right? Like, I understand the theory of, okay, OEL, you can be a little bit more forward-thinking and offensive You thinking. get the green light. Yeah, yeah. but you're, that's still going to be your matchup pair. And 
Tucker Pullman, as we talked about, when, when they tried him with Quinn Hughes, right? He, he, there are certain moments where the play in the offensive zone is, you know, Tucker Pullman's not going to be able to make that play to sustain uh, the attacking threat, and that's going to hamper the offensive, uh, the offensive output of his partner as well. So maybe Although it helps the stakes a little are, bit. The stakes are lower with Oliver ekman Larson, who is, uh, you know, a talented offensive defender, but not as precise a one as Quinn Hughes, right? Like, Quinn Hughes, the game changes when he's on the yeah. ice in a way it just doesn't. Even when Ekman Larson was in, in his, you know, 55.1A uh, defenseman prime, he didn't have the same type of play, makes the game look completely different than what you'll see all the, all the rest of the time, um, sort of gravity on the proceedings I, that uh, Hughes has customarily. I, I just think if your plan is, look, maybe the, the OEL Pullman pair can be very successful in a matchup role, but if your plan is we're going to stick Oliver Ekman Larson with Tucker Pullman, play them in a tough matchup role, and we're going to get a boost of offensive performance from Oliver Ekman Larson. I think you're going to be disappointed, at least on that latter front, right? Maybe they can do the rest of the job. I I think there's a fair bet to be made that they can, but I don't think you should be expecting a, a boost in OEL's offense on top of that, right? Because he's still going to be asked yep. to be the lead guy on your on your tough matchup pair. Well, and would, would, would Rathbone be trusted to play with Myers, considering... You know, it was their concerns about his defensive play that kept him out of the lineup down mm -hmm. the stretch last season, right? Mm -hmm. uh, would they prefer him to have, you know, the caddy, the, the Luke Shen type uh, alongside him? Uh, you know, you'd assume yes, based on the fact that the Canucks often rolled Shen and Rathbone while experimenting with Hughes on the right side at the outset of camp. In any event, I feel like we have a really good sense now of where we're trending up front for this Canucks team, right? I still think Linus Carlson overwhelmingly likely starts in the American League, even though he's getting another top six look here today, mm -hmm. presumably tomorrow. I think the organization's been really impressed. I think there's an understanding that from a development perspective, you know, sending him to the American League is what's best. Uh, I think there's an awareness uh, from the player and his camp about that fact. And, and I think that that's, you know, uh, not just accepted, but seen as a positive, right? So I think we have a good sense now of what this Canucks forward group is going to look like. I would think that Curtis Lazar uh, starts the season on the third line in the event, the likely event, that neither Besser or Mikhaev yeah. are available to return for October 12th in Edmonton. So really, the only lingering question that I've got is, does Niels Oman make this team? And, you know, there's a lot to unpack there from a cap perspective, right? He does cost 880k as opposed to 750k for, for Sheldon Dries or 762k or whatever it is for Sheldon Dries. Um, maybe, maybe that ends up making a little bit of a difference with the Canucks having so much money potentially on IR mm -hmm. or not even on IR because it's going to be back more quickly than that, right? Like, if you're projecting, for example... Besser and Mikhaev to maybe be back for that Washington game on the Monday, right? To miss only two games, for example. Um, you might just have them on the roster, but in any event, it's uh, $11 million you can't really use, right? Like, it's hard to build a roster with the amount of sort of not dead cap space, but injured cap space, banged up cap space that the Canucks are navigating in advance of the opening day roster deadline. So, you know, I still think Niels Amon, though, has put himself in a position where left to their druthers, if they can fit it in, you know, I, I think they're leaning on having him play opening night probably, or at least 
at least taking him east for that first road trip. It looks like this guy, you know, uh, unsigned draft pick of the Colorado Avalanche, brought into the organization to very little fanfare yeah. back in the summer. It looks like he's, you know, if he hasn't made this team yet, he's on the precipice of doing so. And that's enormously impressive, even if, you know, you know from having watched him play that the skill set is relatively limited from an offensive standpoint, right? Um, the defense is where I think we have a fair bit of uncertainty still. I still don't know personally uh, exactly how the club views Pullman Burroughs in, in terms of a, a pecking order between those two, and obviously that could be decisive in the extremely likely event that Travis Dermott is out, maybe not even short-term, right? I mean, we haven't seen him. All, all our yeah. updates are that he's not even skating. I mean, Travis Dermott feels like he could be the guy who goes on LTI, right? Which would give the Canucks $5 million of LTI contracts, maybe 5.75 if Dowling is similarly out long-term or through the month of October, right? That could be the answer to how, this, how all these pieces fit is if Travis Dermott is out for a while here. I'm becoming increasingly convinced that that's likely, right? I mean, it looks it looks like it's trending that way. Uh, so in that event, how the club views Burroughs and Pullman relative to one another, and you would think that Pullman has the lead, but I don't know on form if that's necessarily the case. Um, you know, if that if that is, though, I, the, either way, however the club views that feels likely to be who starts in the opening night lineup as the sixth defenseman on Jack Rathbone's right side. So let's start with the forward. Group. I wish you could have seen Ian McIntyre just walked by me and gave me. He's got. It's got to be one of the funniest thumbs ups I've ever had. <laughs> like just like, just like face full on lit up. Like uh, you remember when they asked Mo Sislak to smile in The Simpsons? <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, oh, <laughs> that was iMac. It was great. <laughs> oh dear, fantastic. <laughs> Nothing like getting a thumbs up from iMac. So good, good, oh, good for it. you there, Drancer. Uh, let, let's start. <laughs> My with, day is made. Let's start with the forward group because, as you said, if you look, okay, yeah, Linus Carlson is skating with Pedersen and Kuzmenko, but I would be shocked to see him not in the AHL. Right? He that that feels like a certainty at this point, based on what we've seen from other players. Dakota Joshua skating as the extra, but again shocking to see him uh, not on this roster, right? So it basically comes down to Sheldon Dries and Neil Zaman. And maybe the salary cap differential does make the difference, but if I had to bet right now, I bet they find a way to have Neil Zaman not just on the roster, but in the starting lineup next week against Edmonton, right? Every time we've heard Bruce Boudreau talk about what he's seen from Neil Zaman, it has been positive. And it's been highlighting very specific things that this team needs, right? The speed, the defensive responsibility, the details, all of those things uh, that we're very aware the Canucks need to improve on. That's consistently what has been highlighted from the coaching staff about Neil Zaman. And even last night, you know, it was about the player Boudreaux had praise for, but also specifically that line uh, with Dickinson and Curtis Lazar. And, you know, I know you said you're, you're expecting to see Curtis Lazar jump up, but I wonder if they look at the trio they have there on the fourth line and think, you know what, maybe we've got something there. Let's keep them together. Joshua, he's eaten his lumps maybe a little bit today, but we'll get him back into that that third line spot uh, when he's in the lineup. But right now, my my anticipation, my expectation is that, yeah, Neil Zaman has made this team, or at least, I, again, I'm anticipating that he will. It's not official yet, obviously, but he looks to have really carved out a niche and a role for himself, Drancer. As you said, that's pretty impressive considering where expectations were when they signed him in the summer. Yeah, and, you know, 
I, I don't know if I'd go as far as expecting him to get a look with like set line mates to open the season or that to be something the Canucks are protective of. You know, this is a team that's missing two guys we expected to play in their top six mm-hmm. on day one in Besser and Mikhaev. And, you know, in the wake of that, are you better off bumping a Curtis Lazar to the third line or and, and having Niels Amon in the lineup as a fourth line center? Like, is that a lower leverage dice roll, as it were, than asking Linus Carlson to come in and play with Pedersen and Kuzmenko, right? Like, I sort of think that's his route here. Now, could he outperform Dickinson and Joshua and keep that job throughout the season? For sure. But I think that's a decision you can defer. You can let them earn that when the games really matter and the and the competition is NHL level night in, night out, three or four times a week, as it will be <laughs> beginning in a week from now, right? So, um, but I do think that that's, it feels like that's where they're leaning based on what we've seen, based on what Boudreaux has said, um, you know, and, and honestly, based on what I'm hearing behind the scenes too. Like, I think this guy is certainly in position to make this team, although, you know, when you're this close, like, it's not a it's not a sprint. You don't make the team at practice today. He didn't make the team in the preseason game last night. He'll have to keep the pedal down, right? Right through the ground, frankly, through that last preseason game, and it practices next week if he's going to be submitted and on the, on yeah. the roster on the 11th. Yeah, if you're just looking for, you know, if you're looking ahead to the game tomorrow, right, and obviously... In that final game, there's a certain element of you want to see the team look cohesive, you want to see the team look as sharp as possible. In terms of roster battles, that might be the one to watch, right? As you said, still has to make a statement here. I'm, I'm expecting that he will do it based on how he's played so far, but it is still, you know, there's work to be done uh, for Neil Zaman to, to solidify his place on the opening night roster. Just continuing on the forwards, uh, just at the opening of the beginning of the segment, so the first line is JT Miller, Tanner Pearson, and Niels Hoaglander. I, I, to me, that looks positive for Hoaglander, right? It's the fourth line. Yeah, I know you've got Sheldon Dry's uh, road hitting in there. There's players missing, all of that. You know, Dakota Joshua is not in the mix like he was uh, previously this week. What do you read, if anything, to Niels Hoaglander getting that shot today? I thought he played well. I mean, I thought he played well last night. He's, he scored goals in back-to-back games on mm-hmm. PP2. I think his fit on PP2 at this point, um, you know, is unquestioned, right? Like, this guy has to be in the lineup for that. Um, look, I mean, I'm pretty consistent in my Niels Hoaglander takes, right? This is, one of this, team's, this is one of this team's, for me, seven best forwards, right? Like, if you asked me today, who do I want out on the ice more or higher up the lineup, Kuzmenko or Niels Hoaglander, I don't even hesitate. It's Niels Hoaglander. If you ask me Pod Colson or Niels Hoaglander, again, to win a game tomorrow, not not who I'd rather have in three years, because then my answer changes, especially in, in Pod Colson's case. But it's it's Niels Hoaglander, right? Like, this is a guy who wins just an absolute murder of puck battles. I don't know what a group of puck battles are called. Is it a murder of puck battles? I'm going to call gonna it a say, murder of puck battles. Who is, like, incredibly good at winning puck battles, like an all-time great, yeah. and we name it after them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. For sure. A, um, a linsman of puck battles. He wins a linsman of puck battles all over the ice. I, I legitimately think you could set his shifts to the Woody Woodpecker soundtrack, right? Sometimes just the way that he steals people's lunch money all up and down the ice, right? You have that laugh track. They're like, ha, ha, ha. I honestly think it would work. Like, it would be fun. Um, and he scores. Like, he just he produces five on five. He's not, you know, uh, uh, going to be a guy, I think, who hits 50 points without PP1 time in his career necessarily. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's a top-line scorer, but he's one of those middle six guys 
who can drive play offensively, although he's high event overall, and produce a ton offensively. You know who he reminds me of a little bit, Jamie? Is like a low end, a low end uh, Matt Zuccarella. Okay, right? Like I can like see that. that kind of that kind of impact. And and Zuccarello in in the in New York before he found whatever magic he's found with Kirill Kaprizov in, in Minnesota, right? Was sort of that guy. Like, on your third line, you threw him with a couple more defensively reliable uh, wingers, you know, most notably guys like Broussard and Benoit Pouliot, right? And he could make that line a, a more offensive threat. He could elevate that. I think I think Hoaglander in the right situation um, could have that sort of impact. Now, you know, I think Pod Colson can be really good in time, maybe even a heavy press in time. Um, but I just think it's going to take him a little bit longer. I'm not expecting that same level of offensive pop from him five on five this year, uh, nor do I think he could be a guy who like carries or drives either offensive or defensive results at five on five this season, um, which is not a knock on a player that I'm extremely high on. It's just, you know, hard to drive play at 21. It's rare. Hoaglander's a guy who can do it. And yeah, he only does it offensively. He's high event overall. He's got some defensive gaps in his game. But, man, this team's going to need really good, really affordable players like Niels Hoaglander if they're going to get to where they want to go this season. Um, I don't think there's been any question for me at camp. He's earned every ounce of the opportunity that he's being given today. My skepticism remains, like, at the end of the day, does he continue to linger in that spot? Or is he always going to be one mistake from the bench from riding pine again? Uh, with this coaching staff because that sort of felt like the story of the last week and realistically that's felt like Niels Hoaglander's Canucks story since the coaching change back in December. The big be- the beginning of the season feels really high stakes for me with Niels Hoaglander because of the absences of Besser and Mikheyev, you know, he's going to get some sort of opportunity, regular opportunity, you have to think, whether it's with players like Miller and Pearson or wherever in the lineup and you know even last night Bruce Boudreau talking about it said you know he's shown it in bits and pieces I thought he was good tonight and he said he's good when he's scoring and that's something we've heard from Bruce Boudreau before about Niels Hoaglander right that if you're going to have the defensive miscues that Niels Hoaglander still does as you said he's high event overall you have the end result has to be there the production has to be there now you can look at Hoaglander's uh, scoring last year and say well a lot of that was kind of percentages driven not likely to continue because he's still generating shots but I think Bruce Boudreaux has made it pretty clear that production is key for Niels Hoaglander in a way it isn't for a player like Vasily Podkolzin in the eyes of Bruce Boudreaux. That's so, right. You know, if he is getting a chance, let's say he does play with Miller and Pearson. That's not what I would bet on. But let's say he does get those chances, uh, you know. <laughs> that feels like a tough spot to yeah. put a to, uh, like a guy whose defense isn't his calling card, particularly in the event that Boudreaux uses them as a first line, right? It just feels like he's going to stay in the lineup as long as he's scoring consistently. And I don't know, you know, mm. Boudreaux, maybe he's not going to be swayed by the, you know, oh, his shooting percentage is cratering, but it'll bounce back. Maybe that doesn't that doesn't ring with him for whatever reason, but he's going to have an opportunity, and I th- it just feels like he needs to put up points. He needs to produce early in the season to really stake a long-term claim, right? Because that's over and over and over what we hear from Bruce Boudreau is production, goals, got to score goals. When you're a nearest whole under player, you have to be scoring goals for me to play you. Well, and that's a high-stakes game for Hoaglander for a variety of reasons, not just in terms of his role with this team, but because it's a contract year for yep. him, right? And look, if he just matches his production over the past couple of years, and, and I mean, I'd have to look at it, but I know it was, what, 27 points? It's like something like 40 points in 
um, in like 120 games, something like that, over the course of his first two NHL uh, seasons. Um, you know, players that score at that level are guys like Philip Heedle and well, guys like uh, D- Dylan Dubé. And those guys come in on their second deals at like $2.5 million, right? Like, there's, all, there's an awful lot riding for Nils Hoaglander, not just on where he plays, but what he can produce this upcoming season. Yeah, 45 points in 116 career games for Nils That's pretty close. Yeah, uh, yeah, you were very close, actually, Drentz. <laughs> Congratulations on that. Thank 27 you. and 56 in his first year, 18 in 60 uh, in his second season with the Canucks. And again, yeah, he... Look, they're just with Besser and McKay out, they're going to have to play him somewhere, right? And I, I just think if he is able to find that scoring touch early in the season, he's going to keep getting those opportunities. But it's also the thing, as you said, he might always just be one mistake away from drastically reduced opportunities as well. 650, 650, it's the Dunbar Lumber text line. It is Canucks Talk. Drancer is on location at UBC. I'm here at the Kintech studio. Final segment of the show on a Thursday coming up with lots more. Uh, to look ahead to tomorrow's game and and what else we expect to see from the Canucks over the, the next few days as well. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Final segment of the show. Drancer is live on location at Canucks practice at UBC. I'm here at the Kintech studio. A 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And uh, Shane in Richmond says, you guys better clip Drance doing the Woody Woodpecker laugh. Uh, yeah, that was a good one. That was, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you had the gumption to actually go through with it and deliver the laugh for us on air drance because that was uh well you have fantastic to be the radio yeah once you bring it up you're committed yeah exactly you can't and everyone knows what it sounds like yes but you still have to remind us you gotta do your impression yeah yeah anyway so that was good i enjoyed that uh some good questions coming in i do want to get to this we're we're a full service canucks show here drance just a quick mention i would be remiss uh, if we did not mention one of the, the cutest things that has happened with the Canucks in a long time. You may have heard about this. The Canucks partnering with BC Guide Dogs this year. They're sponsoring a litter of puppies uh, that are going to be raised and become service dogs this year, which is very, very exciting. Fantastic social media content. All of that. And they have introduced uh, what they're, the litter of pups and at least one of the pups whose name is Rip. R-Y-P, of course, in honor of the late Rick Rippon, former Canuck. And uh, the picture is incredible. The name is fantastic. Absolute home run for the Canucks. You can go find more on their Twitter feed. But uh, I just had to bring that up because we always talk about vibes on this show. The vibes could not be better, at least when it comes to uh, Rip the Puppy Trancer. Well, you know how I feel about dogs. They're the best. They are. Um, Long overdue for this team to get one. They were discussing doing it before the pandemic and and sort of couldn't get it over the line. Uh, This was the time. I'm very excited to meet and play with with what I'm sure is a very, very good boy. I'll have no more (laughs) negatives. I'll have more negative commentary on on Rip. More constructive commentary once I've met him and had a chance to see what his temperament's like, but I'm sure he's the best boy. They're all the best boys. I can't wait to do, um, I can't wait to play with him. Do do I don't know if either Florida or Toronto have a team dog, but you can really, you know, you know, Rip just doesn't stack up to what they're uh, what they've got going no, on. No, I would honestly I would never I would I never when it comes to dogs. They're all they you know, we don't deserve any of them. They're all elite. We don't deserve any they're of all, them. They're, they're all they're all the Colorado Avalanche of dogs. So high end. Yeah, dogs every- are incredible. 
so high end, every single one yeah. of them. No questions about where they rank like we had with the Canucks forward group yesterday. There's no, there's none of that with dogs. Uh, anyways, 650-650 no. is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, and we got some good questions coming in. This one uh, says, do you see the Canucks carrying 14 forwards and 7D or 13 forwards and 8D? What are your predictions for the final cuts? Well, we talked a little bit about kind of who's in the mix for those final uh, roster spots in the last in the last segment. What I will say is I have always been operating on the earth under the assumption that at least to start, it'll be 13 forwards and 8 defensemen, right? Just with the attrition rate for defensemen, the fact that they are going on uh, an East Coast road trip right out of the gate to start the season, I would be very surprised if it's the other way. And you just look at it, well, they have eight healthy defensemen left right now, right? With with Travis Dermott being out, we pretty much know, okay, these are going to be the eight guys that they're taking on that road trip uh, to start the year. <laughs> and, and unless we see something different or hear something different, that's 100% where I'm going. I think you're wrong. I really? Think all it's, right. Oh, yeah. Easily. I think we're going to have to get used to a new prism where the idea of the Canucks carrying 21 skaters on a 23-man roster is out the window. I think they're going to have a lot of trouble So you're going, you're going none of the above. Total players. You're going none of the above. You're going like 13 uh, forward 7D maybe. 14 forward 7D would be my expectation. Okay. Well, that's still, because, that's still because, 21 skaters though. Well, sure. To, okay. At the outset, if Dermot is out long term. Um if Dermot's not out long term, you know I, I don't I can't get them above, like I can't get them to uh, twenty two skaters, much less twenty yeah. uh, three. Right? I might I can't get the so they might have to go they might have to go with twenty one. They might have one extra, period, uh, on this road trip. Now I suspect if Dermot goes on LTI, they should be able to to roster twenty. Um, they should be able to roster twenty uh, one skaters, um, but. You know, it's I, I, like with Besser and Mikheyev, right? If you put them on IR and free up the roster spot, um, but not the cap space, neither guy can play until I think the 18th, right? And it might not even be that. They, they, you'd, they'd have to miss four games. It's three or four games. I think it might be four. So, because from the 11 plus seven days. So, yeah, they wouldn't be eligible to return until the eighth day, which is the 11th then you miss four games. Now, if either guy is even a threat to beat that timeline, so you can have them against Washington, for example, right? Yeah. You're not going to put them on IR, which means they take up a roster spot, which right away means that if you want to dress 12 forwards, you need to carry 14. So that limits you to 7D right there, right then and there. Um, you know, I don't think this team's going to want to risk losing Burroughs on waivers, uh, but I don't know how they get to their numbers and capture the full amount from Dermott and Furland uh, without waiving at least one additional defenseman beyond Willannon. So whether that's Pullman or Burroughs, I suppose we'll see questions to be answered this weekend. Uh, and then, you know, up front, uh, I expect Linus Carlson to be reassigned. I expect Sheldon Dries to be reassigned. You carry 12 healthy forwards, but with Mikhaev and Besser in reserve, that's my strong expectation from the Canucks. So uh, I'll go with I'll go with fourteen forwards seven D, assuming that Dermot is out on uh, LTI. Okay, all right. Well, we will see. Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, look, the cap. We've talked about it a lot because it matters so much, especially at this time of year when you're trying to maximize your LTIR and all of that. So it's gonna be it's gonna be really interesting. Who, one who way us or talk yeah, about I the know. cap? What? what? No. Do we do that on the no. show? 
Uh, a similar related question to that comes in as well. It says, with the AHL team so close, would it work to constantly run with a 21-man roster uh, when the farm team is at home to save cap money, then you simply add a player or two easily because they're in Abbotsford uh, based on injuries? And, well, as you're saying there, there might – I mean, we've seen this around the NHL consistently, right, that sometimes teams that are – at the cap, typically, aren't able to field that full 23-man roster, right? They're going into games with 20, sometimes even less, depending on how tough uh, the situation gets. And certainly, I mean, I think having your AHL team so close facilitates that, but I also don't know if it's something you're going to consistently choose to do as you might, as much as you might be just forced to do it from time to time. Yeah, for sure. And, I, I mean, I think there's going to be parts of the season, most likely, where the Canucks-only roster... 21 people, right? Where they literally have one extra going at all. Um, So, you know, I think think that's just the reality. And and this is an increasing reality around the league, right? You are going to see teams intentionally roll with emergency backup goalies for games. Um, You're going to see teams play... um, Players short. Mm -hmm. Like, this this is how it works now. Everyone is so pressed up against the upper limit... And, every, and teams have decided they want to spend at the top end of their lineup for the most part and avoid spending on the middle. And they're willing to take some hits in terms of a, a sixth defenseman or a 12th forward in order to maximize the talent that they can get on their roster under the upper limit. Like that's Those are the decisions we're going to see. They're going to be more and more common. We've already seen teams like Vegas play like two players short oh, yeah. games. Uh, we've seen Toronto use emergency backups. Uh, they're not the only team that's done it. They're not going to be the only team that does it. Uh, we're going to see a lot of that this season. Teams making really hard choices as injuries pile up, and the Canucks are going to be no different. That's come for them too. They've decided to operate once again right up against it. They lead the league in dead money again. Uh, some of that dead money might even roll over depending on how the likes of Hoaglander and Pod Colson and, and Kuzmenko perform this season. Uh, never mind Amon, right? Um, so I, he only has a small amount of performance bonuses, though, so they're not too worried about it, I'm sure. But, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's the world we're going to live in, and that's the world the Canucks are going to live in. Don't be surprised if the number of players on their roster, uh, you know, if they're only scratching a guy uh, here and there for long stretches of the season, particularly when they're at home and Abbotsford's yeah. at home, and a call-up is an Uber ride away. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, as long as there's no traffic. As long as there's nothing going on at the Portman Bridge, then it, uh, it becomes a right. lot no, easier. Right. No, none of the repaving that I uh, drove through yesterday. I was going to say, I was really worried about everyone making it out on time, uh, especially the Canucks having to go all the way from UBC to to Abbotsford, but uh, fortunately they Skin got... Skin of our teeth. Yeah, Skin of our teeth. an early start on it. Uh, more questions coming in. We'll continue to read through your thoughts and submissions, six 5650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, this is an interesting one. Ella texts in, Dranson Dodd, what would you define as a disappointing season for Elias Pettersson this year? And I, I like the framing of that question because you and I have talked uh, a lot about the potential upside we see uh, for Elias Pettersson this year. I think I think he's going to be really good. I think the team needs him to be really good. But, you know, I also do always try to remind myself when I'm thinking about potential upside, we kind of had this talk a little bit uh, about the forward group in general yesterday, Drance. Yeah, there's potential upside, but with every player in every situation, there's potential downside as well. It's important to keep that in mind. The thing with Pedersen is, because my expectations are so high, that also raises the bar for, you know, what he needs to clear to avoid having a disappointing season. So... I, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. But of disappointing kind of, so harsh. 
disappointing is harsh, right? Like, yeah. Um, like, you know, a season we'd look at as, as what? Like, if he has a disappointing season, what's the conversation? Like, let's really frame what it looks like, right? What's okay. the conversation coming out of this year if he has a disappointing season? Is it, is it this guy can't be the best player on a contending team? Like, is that the conversation we're having? Uh, what does he have to do to shake uh, our belief in something like that? Is that sort of, do you want to frame it that way? I think that would certainly qualify, right? Okay. Let, let's use that as the standard, right? What, what would have okay. to happen? What would, the, what would it take for, for you to go into the offseason? Again, questioning, can he be the best player on a Stanley Cup team? And also, let's not forget, he's going to be eligible for an extension in this offseason, right? And we have one right. framework where we think about the deal now, which is going to be big, big money. But if we're having deal, those types of conversations, it completely changes how you have to appro uh, approach the contract negotiations so, as well. So if we're having that conversation, though, right? If we're having the... Can he be the best guy on this team if they're really, really good um, conversation? Then for me, it's going to be less about like uh, a goal mark yeah. and more about a two-way results mark, right? So I, I'll go through I'll go through my like baseline, my baseline, like what I'd have to see Elias Pettersson clear to continue to believe that he can be, as I do, by the way, that he can be the best forward on a team with a chance to win a cup, right? And, you know... I think what I need to see is like 55% control of, of shot attempts. Okay, I'm going to go really granular here. All right, all right. Uh, plus 15 five-on-five five goal differential. Plus 15 at least. Uh, at least 30. I'm going to set it high. I'm going to set it at 33 and a half goals. Okay. I need to see mid-30s goal totals. And I need to see point per game plus. Right? It doesn't need to be 90 but it needs to be point per game plus. And, you know, if he plays 70, I want to see 34 goals and more than 70 points. So that would be my that would be my baseline. This is what Pedersen needs to accomplish if I'm going to continue to put him in the caliber of player, you know, can be best forward on cup winning team or contending team. And by the way, that's a really high like I've set these yeah, no high kidding. for a reason, right? <laughs> like um no, but I think about Nazem Kadri, okay? Nazem Kadri is a phenomenal player and was just the third best forward on a Stanley Cup winning team, right? Um, great. He's a, he's a phenomenal player, a genuine top-of-the-lineup centerman who can go point-per-game plus in some seasons or play really hard minutes for you and score 30 goals, right? There's like five guys like him in the league. Like, he's incredible. But if Nazem Kadri is your best player, you're not winning anything. And we all know it, right? If Elias Pettersson has a career trajectory like Nazem Kadri, he's still going to make a ton of money over the course of his career. He's still going to be an enormously successful player. But if you're an elite, elite player, you know, the expectations are even higher than that for you. And Pettersson's now, what, 23? Right? So mm -hmm. this, is, this is real statistical prime territory. What we see this season, he's going to have a couple opportunities to build off, but we would expect this season to approximate what Pettersson looks like at the absolute apex of his uh, powers, at least from a statistical prime category. Sorry, Mark Spector. And so, you know, that's sort of the bar that he has to hit. Like, stellar, outrageous two-way results, uh, plus a, a really high level of production. Point per game plus 33.5 goals or more, mid-30s goal totals. Um, you know, otherwise, I think you have to look at it and say... Well, Pedersen's a really good young piece for our team or for this team, but, you know, we 
or this team, this Canucks organization might need to find, um, you know, their 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 answer to McKinnon and McDavid, their elite driver elsewhere. Yeah. Right. Uh, that that for me is that for me is where we're at, particularly because his 2021 season uh, was disappointing, and the first half of last season, uh, you know, certainly caused many people in this market, albeit not you and I to have serious doubts about his abilities, right? Like, this has to be, you know, a, a season where he really shows up and proves that, you know, he can be at the level, above the level, of a guy like a Nassim Kadri. And that's a really high bar in a really hard league. Yeah, and that th- what you touched on at the end there is the fascinating thing, right? Because, as you know, as much as you can look at the Canucks situation, and there's obviously a lot of obstacles they're going to have to overcome to be that consistent cup-contending team... At least you can look at it and say, well, you st- I still believe Elias Pettersson can be that top-end forward for them, right? That can drive that team if that part of the conversation ever changes. And I want to be clear, you know, we're responding to a listener question. We're not saying this is going to happen. We're both very, very high on Elias Pettersson. We're just trying to answer the question from the listener. But if that part of the conversation ever changes... Well, that's such a good question, right? Because yeah. it's existential. Yeah. Like, it's, it, well, in some just, ways... You're completely back to the drawing board. Right? You're completely back to the drawing board in terms of team building. Correct. If all of a sudden you're having that conversation about Elias Pettersson. Right? There's a reason Absolutely. we have we've heard it from management. We've said it all the time. There's a reason they're paying the table about Pettersson, Demko, and Hughes. Because as much as the rest of the team might frustrate you at times, those guys are legit a legit Stanley Cup contending core, at least the makings of one. If one of them falls out or, or if Hughes and Pettersson don't sustain the levels we've seen from them previously, it, it complements even more everything else you're trying to do. So I, I do think it's important to at least have in mind what would prompt that kind of conversation and, and what it would mean for the future of the team. Because as you said, it would be absolutely existential uh, if that does happen. I'm betting on Pedersen well, to clear the bar, but yeah, go ahead. Well, especially because we're, you know, we're now in a phase. Like we've had the last three seasons of Canucks hockey, one really successful one and two uh, really disappointing ones. Overall, although, you know, I suppose last season was mixed, right? So let's go one mixed, one really good, and one really disappointing Mm -hmm. season. All of these were pre-prime seasons, right, for Hughes and Pedersen as a duo, right? Pedersen was in his statistical prime last year, 22 to 26 is when we expect players to peak in terms of their production, right? So this is really the first full season where both guys are going to be in their prime, right? And, you know, like this needs to be a year where they're able to carry an awful lot, right? It's one thing if they carry an awful lot and this team still uh, has issues because it's like, okay, you can build around that. You know, you can improve uh, the fringes. You can rebuild the defense core. You can do all of those things. But if those guys aren't – if you're not confidently saying yes – those can be the best players on our team when we make deep playoff runs. If you're not confidently saying that eight months from now, then yeah, this team's got some significant issues. Again, I'm not concerned about either guy. I think they're both special. Yeah. Um, there's very few players in this league that I enjoy watching more than Quinn Hughes, right? Like, I feel lucky <laughs> to get to watch Quinn Hughes on a nightly basis. Um, Pedersen hits that bar an awful lot, too. I think, I think the world of his hockey IQ and that shot is... Uh, Oh, you know, a whisper from perfection. But yeah, I mean, I think this is a, you know, this is a season where we we can't have any doubt coming out of this year uh, about that question. 
The answer to that question must be an emphatic, without hesitation, absolutely, of course, these are the guys. Uh, eight months from now. And, and you know, I do think if they're not, that's an existential quandary for this well, franchise and this new management. Group. And I think about something we heard from JT Miller earlier this week, right? Our young guys aren't actually young anymore. They're not that young anymore, right? It, it, it can't be theoretical that it's going to happen sometime in the future. It has to start happening. I mean, we even heard, you know, it's a different caliber of player, obviously, but uh, earlier Mark Spector talking about Jesse Pugliarvi, right? It's like, hey, he's 24. It's okay, you're, you've got potential, but it can't be theoretical. It needs to actually happen. Again, completely different caliber of player, completely different bar. You're expecting them to jump over, but I think there's some truth there as well, right? You need these players in their prime now to be those types of top of the lineup players. And this, somebody texted in, Hughes has already become a legit star. Completely agree with that. Would love to see even more added to his game. But yes, I think his performance last season uh, was absolutely exceptional. And I would continue uh, to expect more of the same from Quinn Hughes this year. Uh, final few minutes of the show here, Drancer. Just uh, before we sign off, you're out there at UBC. We've gone through the lineup, what we can read uh, into it, what we can't necessarily read into it ahead of uh, of their final preseason game. I mean, what is it? Is it still just the defensive improvement? We'll talk more about the game tomorrow uh, on the show tomorrow, obviously, but just kind of final thoughts here, what you are hoping to see or expecting to see from the Canucks in that tune-up. Is it? Does it still just come down to uh, trying to make sure the defense uh, gets a little better? Yeah, I think I, I would like to see a clean uh, defensive game for sure, particularly in a game that McDavid's not playing, yes, right? Yes, Um So, you know, this uh, Coyotes team, not exactly the same level of threat, right? You know, when you talk about the Oilers, it's like, well, that's an Oilers AHL lineup versus that's an Oilers NHL lineup. It's like you can't tell the difference when it's the Coyotes, right? <laughs> like, it's just, it yep. just is a Coyotes lineup. Um, so, you know, I think the Coyotes... Uh, yeah, I mean, you you need to. I would like to see a. I would like to see a clean defensive performance. I don't care if they win or lose. Um, you know, you you want you don't want to win too much. You don't want to lose too much in the preseason. Um, you'd feel modestly better if the Canucks had two wins in the preseason going into the year, but it doesn't really matter now. You can you can see on the ice there's, there's a load off these players. Like, make no mistake, right? They wanted to win last night. Pedersen wanted to win last night. He didn't want to hear the talk anymore. He wanted to you know, be able to feel good about this team, this group going into the season. I think they've now accomplished that no matter what happens. Uh, but I'd like to see a clean, tidy, uh, professional defensive performance yeah. on Friday for sure. Um, you know, and then, and then look, they've got a weekend, uh, weekend of practices and then a really hard road trip, a really tough one. Uh, so it's going to be a fascinating week for the Canucks. And, and look, we're, uh, we're at Thursday, a week today, Jamie. We will be discussing on our program, on our airwaves, yeah. from noon to 2 p.m. every day, Monday to Friday. We will be unpacking Vancouver's first regular season game. The time is nigh. Winter is coming. Let's go. Regular season hockey. Let's go. But we will let you get back to Canucks practice out there at UBC. Uh, that's going to do it for us today. We are back tomorrow right here on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.